0: So let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. This is the first, the first book in the New Testament. It says, Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, the people he had called out. He had, they were fishermen, you know, just common people who had not been selected by any other rabbis. And he said, come with me. You can follow me. And he brought them and he said, His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying this, Blessed are the poor in spirit... Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, you know, when I am, when I started Christian ministry in the church, no one told me I had to do this, but this is the way I felt. I felt like I had to act like I was perfect. I felt like if I was going to lead people, they had to respect me. They had to respect my walk, whether it was real or not. I had to to have this veneer. I had to let everybody know that I knew everything about the Bible and that I was living it and I didn't struggle and I didn't have to do all this. And I had to, because I had to, you know, I had to put myself on a pedestal in your life in order for you to listen to what I had to say, right? And what I realized is, is that when you do that, then that is what everyone else feels like they have to do in their own faith. And that there's not this vulnerability, there's not this honesty, there's not this just let's go through life together as messed up people struggling to honor God kind of a thing. You lose that. And then you have this culture of outperforming one another and out impressing one another and acting, you know, more righteous than one another. And this was really kind of the attitude of the Pharisees during this time. That there was this whole culture of if you are righteous, you are a teacher of God's word, you are a man of God, that you just you just walked around with a lot of pride and you followed the law and you did everything in the eyes of people. Uh, But the accusation on many of those people in these days, Jesus would say, is that you follow me, you know, you follow God with your ways, but your hearts are far from me. And so what it meant to be a disciple in those days was you would have this rabbi, you would have this teacher, you would have this person that you would look at and you respect and you thought, I want to be like that guy because he just seems the most godly. So i I want to be like this guy. And what they would do is this, this rabbi would choose his followers. He would choose his disciples and say, okay, follow me and I'll teach you my way. He says, I'm going to teach you my way. And he had all these things that were found in scripture that they were supposed to do. But then there were other things that were specific to each rabbi. That there were a list of things that he would make his disciples do. That were not scriptural, not in the Bible, but it was just like, this is my signature, if you will. This is my signature move. My disciples do this. And it was always uh, something extra that was more burdensome, that was more um, probably difficult. And it were these things that they had to do that were just significant to this disciple. And and they called that uh, the yoke. Of that disciple. When you think of a yoke, you typically think of a thing that holds two oxen together, right? A yoke that, that they pull together and they work together. Well, this was something that a disciple or a, a, a rabbi, a teacher would put on the shoulders of their disciple to help them understand who, who they really are. And Jesus begins to say to my disciples, my yoke is going to be different than what you seen." And so he begins to teach this. He starts with blessed are the poor in spirit for, those, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on to the merciful and they'll be shown mercy to the peacemakers, to all of these. This is a pretty revolutionary thing that he did. And so, how, you know, I think about how would you define a disciple? I was at a conference this week and one of, the, one of my friends I was talking to was saying, what if we defined a disciple as a non-consumer? And I was like, well, what does that mean? What does it mean, first of all, to be a consumer? Well, that means that what you do is you, you, you come and you're a part of something for you. You just take it in. You're just absorbing all that it and everything. It, it starts with the product that you need and it ends with you getting that product. And you just kind of receive constantly. And he said, what if we just define a disciple of Christ as being someone that that is no longer even on the radar? We're not even worried about what we receive. Instead, we're, we're uh, thinking more about who we become. A non-consumer, not someone that's just taking in, but that someone is learning for the fact of living it out all in our lives and also for, for God's glory for others. What would really happen? And the thing I love about the Beatitudes, these few verses in Scripture, is because Jesus very clearly says, if you do these things... This benefit, while these things give us a humble and a different kind of posture towards other people, these things will directly result in these amazing things in your life and in my life. He's introducing this idea of paradox. The first will be last, the last will be first. Those kinds of things. And so this is truly, truly uh, a new way. So I want to give you three things, okay? I think on that line there is three things. Three things. That I think we can learn that Jesus is doing as He is redefining what it means to be a follower of Christ through uh, the Beatitudes. And these three things we can apply throughout the next couple of weeks. Then I would talk specifically about just verse three very quickly. Okay, Jesus was redefining discipleship in a handful of ways. Okay, the first one is—it's a word we use around here a lot—that Jesus changed their posture. Just fill that out in your in your outline. Jesus changed uh, their posture. And when I think about that, I think about the posture, not just, you know, when you think about a posture, it's how, it's how you are, how you stand, and that posture represents really how you feel about yourself, whether you're confident or you're nervous or you're prideful or whatever it may be, but you have a posture that really communicates a lot about how you feel about yourself, but posture also communicates how you feel about other people. Probably even more than anything, our posture, our nonverbal communication communicates a lot about how we feel about other people. And then our our posture also, what he changed was not just how we may look at ourselves or other people, but also how we view God. And is our posture of a, do we respond to God in such a way that we think of him as this this angry uh, God who sits on a cloud and throws lightning bolts at us when we mess up? Or do we, do we communicate a posture towards God of, of um, a reconciled relationship with him where we can be comforted in knowing that he loves us more than we can ever dream? Or imagine because how we view ourselves and how we view our relationship with, with him is going to change a lot. And this is what Jesus is changing. He's changing our posture, how we interact with one another. That it's not this veneer of, no, I got this all together and I'm I'm perfect. And instead, he's saying, listen, in fact, it's the exact opposite of that. And when you do that, people are going to see me in you instead of just you. They're going to see me in you, in your humility, in your vulnerability, in your honesty. And they're going to see hope in that. And they're going to see a clear picture of Jesus. So he started with that and he changed their posture. And Jesus reminded them, Matthew 11, 30, one of my favorite scriptures, for my yoke is easy, Jesus said. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I think it's a pretty good statement that if our journey as Christ followers becomes to seem like this massive burden, then something's out of line because that's not what Jesus taught. Now, it's not easy. It's, it's hard at times. And it's not just, you know, this life of rose petals and whatever, you know. But there's always hope. And it's not because Jesus put it on us. He says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. But we're also called out when we think about the words of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 58, 4b. We need to think about how we do our faith and how we do church and what is our priority. In in Isaiah 58, the prophet is really accusing the nation of Israel of losing their focus. That they've gathered for worship. They have great assemblies. They have uh, fantastic festivals for God. They do all these things. All these, they fast and they pray and they celebrate and all this. But he, the prophet Isaiah in 58.4 says, You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Saying there is a new way of Christ that we need to follow. So first, they changed their posture. Second, Jesus expanded their expectation. This is what I love Jesus just blew the doors off what they thought could really happen. And I think for a lot of us, we think if, if maybe if we begin to follow in faith and we live more seeking God's kingdom to a breakthrough in our life, we probably have this idea of what that might look like. Half of it scares us to death because we don't even want to do that yet, you know? We know we need to and we know we should, but we don't want to and we struggle with that. It's like, why don't I want to? Well, because we're, we're sinners. We're always going to struggle with that, right? Um But he begins to blow the doors off our expectation. It goes way beyond that, something that God can do, far beyond just us. I love Isaiah 40, verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. The greatness and the amazing things of God are far beyond anything we can. We go, well, this just doesn't make sense. And I think God goes, exactly That's why you need me. That's why you need to lean on me, the one who spoke and it was, because in those times, I have something to offer you that the world doesn't understand. And the world looks at it. It, it, Scripture even says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But for those who are of God, it's the power of God. I can't understand that. It just happens. It's just something that happens. All right, but he blows the doors off the expectation. I was looking at this, and I was like, "My goodness, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." And then it goes on: uh, uh, those who are mourning, for they will be comforted; and they, those who inherit the earth, they will be declared righteous; they will be shown mercy; they will see God; they will be called sons of God. Wow! And then it ends again: for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'm like, wow, this is a kingdom of heaven sandwich, you know. It's like really big. Kingdom of heaven is yours, is ours. We get to experience the greatness of God on both ends. It's like the bread and everything else is the meat in between. It's like this is big. This isn't the small God that I like to put in a box and go, okay, God, I'll, I'll get you on Sunday. Come on, God, we're going to church. You know? This is just a really big God that wants to do some really cool things. The thing that you think in your life right now that you feel like you have no hope in, that thing. I can't explain it. All right. So Jesus expanded their expectation. He was saying these are the attitudes, or these are the ways you live. These are the is the posture that you have, and that these this is what the work of the Spirit's going to be in your life. These are the inheritance you get. This is the position you get. This is what's going to happen. All right. Number three, Jesus increased their self awareness. I think I'd like to change that. I'd like to say. Jesus called for self-inspection. Let's say that. I I think the old way was you deal with you, you try, uh, me and you, we kind of put things on us. And in my life, how it was, I bought all the cool Christian t-shirts and I bought all, I threw away all my Metallica CDs and tapes and bought Michael W. Smith and and, uh, it was good stuff, whatever. But it was just like, look at me, I'm putting all this stuff on. I'm a good Christian now, like in one day. It was like, I'm carrying my Bible, Look at me. Um, what am I even talking about? Oh, okay. <laughs> and um, I think that, I think the old way was put all this stuff on, not clothes, put all the, these rules and these laws and the things we think we're supposed to do to impress God because if we're really awesome, we can impress God. We can just hide all the things in our life that we really struggle with and God's like, "Oh, well, where did all that stuff go? You know? He doesn't know where it is. He can't find things when we hide them in the dark. And... Um, we say, let's put all these things on, and then let's look at everyone else. This is the, I'm going to look at you. Oh, you don't have this on. Look at, you know, oh, you're, ooh, I didn't know. To, you know, that's kind of the old way. And Jesus kind of said, no, here's what I want you to do. I want you to start with you. Take it off and get into your heart. And start looking at the things that really matter to me. If God is love, and the greatest command is love God and love your neighbor with all your heart, Man, we default into doing stuff, don't we? We perform, we're dutiful, all this stuff. And then God just says, just when you think about your heart. And Jesus said, I want you to think all of these things are very personal things. All the Beatitudes, all these things that he asks us to do are, are humbling and they're hard for us because we're very selfish people, right? God understands that. Do you know that? That's my greatest hope. It's like, God, this is hard. He's like, really? Yes, I know. It's hard. Jesus walked, I walked the earth for you. I did this. I experienced everything you've been through. Remember that? And he's like, oh yeah, I remember that part too. Jesus increased our self-inspection. When we do not have these things, they're really obvious. Okay, they kind of stand out. There's really no gray area. Either you're extending mercy to someone or you're not. Either you're humble or you're not. All right? Either Either you understand your position of being poor in spirit or you don't. You know, and so it's really clear. Galatians 6, Paul wrote the, The Galatian Church, verse three through five, he says, "If anyone thinks he's something when he is nothing, he deceives himself." It says, "Anyone, if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself." Each one should test his own actions. Then, then he could take pride in himself without comparing himself to anyone else. For each one should carry his own load. So he changes their posture of what it means to be a disciple. He expands their expectation of what will happen as a true follower of him. What, what's really going to happen? Some huge things. Okay, and then he just increased the personal responsibility of saying, listen, guys, yeah, look at yourself. Begin to work from the inside out of what's going on in your own life. He says, look at yourself. And then he starts with verse 3, and he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what does this mean? I had a friend one time talk about the Beatitudes, and he was, um, he was an artist, he's a musician. And he, and he just like, yes, the Beatitudes to me, it's really the beautiful attitudes. And I'm like, no, that's not anything what it's supposed to be at all. It's, that's, that's cute. Um, but really, the Beatitudes are not beautiful attitudes. They, they kind of manifest themselves that way, but what they really are, they're really a beautiful way of life they're really the things that just kind of saturate and they're the result of a real heart change of when God comes into your life and the spirit moves and you come to a place where you're just different. You know, maybe some of you've experienced that where you're doing things now in your faith, you're like, I would have never done that a year ago. I would have never cared about that a year ago or two years or whatever. The beautiful thing about this journey is that you keep, that keeps happening. You know, each year you look back and you go, whoa, what was I thinking? <laughs> in a good way, okay. And instead, it's it's really a way of life. And so, I want to give you four thoughts on this scripture on Matthew five three to give a little understanding of what it is saying. That word "blessed" uh, comes from two words that really means fully satisfied. Fully satisfied. A lot of times, when we think of blessed, we think, "Oh, that person is blessed." What we really think is that person's charmed. You know, they just everything they fall uphill. You know, everything is great for that. They're kind of they're just blessed. Um, you ever said that, felt that way about somebody, uh, not yourself, usually? Um, it really doesn't have anything to do with just being charmed or lucky or whatever. It, it, it means fully satisfied, fully satisfied, all-encompassing encompa- uh, all satisfaction in your life, contentment in any circumstance. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But it literally means fully satisfied, and it's often translated to the word joy. See, because joy is something that only comes when you're fully satisfied. We're not talking about the temporary. We're not talking about the circumstantial. We're talking about something that comes from someplace deeper that doesn't really have anything to do with you because you can't make yourself joyful, you know? Blessed means fully satisfied and is translated joy. The second thing is we need to understand a little bit about the nature of blessedness is that blessedness is not static, okay? It's not fixed, but it's progressive. It's increasing. That's the good news. It's increasing. Um, I thought it was interesting. I just looked up the, the definitions of static and progressive. In sociology, static means referring to a condition of social life bound by tradition. Isn't that interesting? It's not static. Progressive characterized by such progress or by continuous improvement. Improvement. Reminds me of Paul when he said, I continue. Paul, the apostle who started the New Testament church, said, I continue to work out my salvation with much fear and trembling. It's not that he needed to work out getting saved. It's that God was doing something in him when he got saved. And he understands it's a lifelong process that he he is becoming all that God wanted him to be. And he continues to work this thing out because it's progressive. It's ever increasing. Third thought on that is that this joy comes from salvation Very specifically, the way these words are set up in the description of the the Beatitudes, the receptor of the blessing is saying that the joy comes through salvation and specifically the indwelling of Christ as a result of abiding in him. I think that's the point, right? Joy comes from salvation and the indwelling of Christ. So what is the difference? What's the difference between joy and happiness? Do Do we know joy and happiness? Happiness is really kind of circumstantial. Something goes well, and it's usually the result of some luck or some kind of thing that's out of your control. It's just like, oh, sweet. And we're like, ah, and it just fades with that thing fading. We're not talking about that. That's why when we, under, when we see Scripture that says that there is a joy, there is a comfort, there is a peace that comes that surpasses all understanding, that comes from God, that it's like I should not be able to sustain in this moment, that's a gift. It's a gift from God, that joy. All right, but the last thought, and this is, this is really it the crux of all of this, is that poor in spirit means to be a spiritual beggar. Here's what I mean by that. The phrase poor in spirit literally in the Greek is translated from spiritually impoverished. Spiritually impoverished. Now, if you know anything about poverty, you understand that there are many levels of poverty, but the bottom two, there's poverty and there's, there's extreme poverty. The difference between poverty and extreme poverty. Poverty means you just, life is rough, it's terrible, but you just barely, you're, you're alive. You're able to be alive. But then extreme poverty is when people are dying from diseases that has a $20 medication. They just can't, they can't do it. They can't afford it. They can't do it. That there's just a place where they're at the very bottom rung of society where No matter how high they jump to the ladder, no matter how, they just cannot reach it on their own. And the only way they're going to pull out of that, if someone reaches down and says, let me help you out. There are those who are poor who could raise up, grab themselves by the bootstraps and press on. We're not talking about that. We're talking about someone who literally, this word literally in this context means helpless. There is no circumstance. There is no, Book it up, sailor, you can do it. They just, they can't make it. They are completely helpless. This is what this word is. What he's saying is, in order for us to inherit or to gain the kingdom of God, break it through our life, even salvation, the only way we can attain that is if we realize that without Christ, we cannot do enough to earn our salvation that we could follow all the rules. We can act as perfect as we can try to pretend to be perfect. We can sit down with all the Ten Commandments and try and do all that stuff, and we will still fall short. If you were to study the Scripture, you would see clearly that it says the Ten Commandments were given to us not to give us a set of rules that if we obey, we can go to heaven. The Ten Commandments were given to us, the law was given to us to expose the fact we can't do it. We, We just can't do it. That is why Jesus came, and He says, "If we could just understand our poverty, that there's no way to earn heaven, to earn salvation without His sacrifice on the cross, we don't understand that as our condition. That we are we are depraved. There is depravity in us, and we are we're spiritually bankrupt, and we can't do it on our own. That's why we need Christ." Romans 5, 6 says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more have we been reconciled? Shall we be saved through life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation through Jesus alone, the kingdom of God, when we understand our poverty.